God's word is filled with farewell discourses. These are the last words of some key figures in in the history. These are Old Testament characters uh, whom God used mightily. They're servants of the Lord. And in the the last days of their life, last moments of their, their life, Scripture has recorded for us some of the things that they have said. Think of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 here. He's coming to the end of his life. He's not going to be passing over to the promised land. But he calls and summons the people of God together. And he, and he, and he blesses the people of God. He blesses each one of the tribes. And he concludes with this blessing. He's reminding them that the eternal God is their dwelling place. And that it is God who's going to sustain them with his everlasting arms. And he concludes with this, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and sword of your triumph. They're about to enter the promised land, and the last things that Moses is saying to them is, Remember your God. Remember who you are. You are the people of God that he has saved. I think of, and and how can we forget, the final words of Joshua, the servant of the Lord, who did take the people into the promised land. And there at the end of his life, he's, he's advanced in age and he summons all of Israel together. And, and some of you have these famous words, right? And uh, maybe a coffee mug or something like that or a plaque on your wall, right? Where he challenges them. Who are you going to serve? Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord can imagine how that reverberated in the hearts and minds of the people of God. Here's the servant of the Lord. He's, he's about to pass on into glory. And he's reminding them that these are the false gods of Canaan are not real gods. But they need to serve the living God. Think of David, probably near his deathbed or on his deathbed, calls his son Solomon to him. Solomon who is to succeed him to the throne And he gives this solemn charge to his son. You, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. What incredible encouragement and what a solemn charge David gives in the final moments of his life. And of course, we cannot forget Jesus' final words to his disciples in John 14 through 16 and, and his prayer for his disciples and all who would believe upon their testimony after his departure. We remember these final words. They are weighty. They are powerful You might be remembering even right now the final words that someone, a loved one who passed on, maybe said to you in their final moments. Those will forever be in your mind and heart. They are significant. They carry great importance. The letter that we are going to begin today, 2 Timothy, is such a letter. It is Paul's final farewell discourse. And it's written to his beloved protege. Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith. These are the final recorded words of Paul, the apostle of the Lord. 
And they recount for us what is foremost on his mind and on his heart in the final, probably weeks or months of his life. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read the first seven verses. Hear the words of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. These are the words of the Lord. As we begin this next of the letters in the pastoral epistles, let me give you a little bit of background information uh, regarding the time that this is taking place. We had just finished the wonderful letter uh, of 1 Timothy, and uh, now we have 2 Timothy behind us, but it's, it's kind of like, when did Paul have occasion to write this? When did it take place? Well, this particular letter was written during Paul's last and final imprisonment. We know he was imprisoned a few times. In Acts, we see him imprisoned with Silas, right? That wonderful story of how the Lord delivers him from prison. At the end of Acts, we find Paul in prison again, but there he's under house arrest. And and even though maybe at that time he didn't know he was going to be set free from that, he was and gets to continue on in ministry. But now it is his last and final imprisonment. Scholars believe uh, Paul was imprisoned in the Mamertine prison in Rome, not under the house arrest of Acts 28. This took place a little bit later, probably about a year and a half to two years uh, after the writing of 1 Timothy. Paul was ministering again, and now he finds himself in this place. Now, we know he's in prison because just a few verses later, he's going to tell us he's imprisoned, okay? That's where he's writing from. And this Mamertine uh, prison, if you go to Rome, you're able to see uh, there's a church that's been built around where they believe Paul uh, was held, and possibly Peter as well. Uh, they're not sure, but Paul for sure most likely was there at the Mamertine prison, and that was a, a, a dank and dismal underground chamber with a single hole uh, in the ceiling uh, with, for which prisoners were lowered into that chamber. Uh, very little light came through that. Whatever musty air needed to, to breathe in there came through that uh, hole. It was uh, unbearably hot in the summer and frigid cold in the winter. Prisoners were actually placed there really not as punishment. It was actually just a detainment center. Prisoners who found themselves in the Mamertine prison uh, were eventually going to be executed. That would be their punishment. That would be their sentence. Horrific environment. Um, prisoners would have to relieve themselves right where they were. And some of them would be left to starve until the moment of their execution. This is where Paul finds himself in this moment. 
The time of this letter is roughly A.D. 64 to 67. Um, and Paul was in that prison until the moment of his execution. He was martyred uh, during Nero's reign, during a time of persecution. Many believe around the same time, if not the same time, that Peter himself was martyred. Now, Paul, in this moment the writing this letter, knows his time is short. He's not optimistic about escaping his execution. In fact, he writes in chapter 4, verse 6, the time of my departure has come. He knew it was at hand. So this letter is going to serve um, as a sort of last will and testament for Paul. It, it recounts what's foremost on his mind. What is it that he wants to convey in these last possible weeks of his life? And as you read the letter, you're going to get the sense of what Paul was feeling. In those moments, what he was experiencing during his imprisonment and, 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 and the force of that is going to come through in this letter. We find what he writes in this letter is that he was lonely. Well, Paul's a great apostle of the Lord, a servant of God, did so many things, but let's not forget that he was human. He's just a man. And he's finding himself in this place and he says, many have abandoned me. Demas has abandoned me. He was in love with the world. He left me. Many departed from me. Only Luke has stuck around. Can you imagine that? Imagine being in that circumstance, in that situation, and all those that you thought you could count on have scattered. They're going to act like they don't know you. Or they're scared for their own lives. Right? Think about the care. The concern, the weight on his shoulder for the churches. What is going to happen to these churches after I depart? What is going to become of them? A lot of these churches were these little fledgling house churches, little startups that that were going through so many troubles. And here, where he's writing to Timothy, who is still in Ephesus, he knows conditions in Ephesus have deteriorated. They're not that great. Those who were still teaching a different doctrine, those false teachers, they were still troubling the church. He mentions them again in this very letter. Here, a year and a half to two years later. Could you imagine what is going through his mind, knowing that his time was at hand, yet this was all happening out there? How he had invested his life and devoted his life for the advance of the gospel, for the the planting of churches, and knowing what's taking place, and, and his time, his time had come. And he knew that after his death, a heavier burden and responsibility would be placed on Timothy's shoulders. He expresses in our passage there how he longs to see Timothy again. He wanted then, by way of this letter, to exhort him to continue to stand firm. For Timothy to persevere, to remain faithful and steadfast. He's going to provide him some very needed instruction and he's going to encourage him and comfort him with the promises of the gospel. He was leaving and he needed to leave some last words with Timothy, his spiritual son. See this for what it is. This is a letter from a spiritual father to a spiritual son in the faith. Things that he wants him to know to carry on with him through the rest of his life. I don't know if you've thought about this, but I have. 
Like if I knew I was on my deathbed and I only had a very short time to live, what would I want to say to my wife? What would I want to say to my daughter? What would I want to say to our church family? I've thought about those things. Maybe you've thought about those things in relation to your own life. As, as If you knew your days were numbered and your days were short, like Paul, what would you communicate? And, and that's exactly what we're going to find in this letter. Now, it's an intensely personal letter. And you might be, you know, thinking, well, it's nice. It was a letter written to Timothy. Let's not forget, right, that these things are relevant for every believer in every age, especially every believer today. You will find as we go through this, like, it's like, wow, this could have been written for us today in 2023. Now, verse 1 there, we, we see the author, right, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now over this last century there has been challenges to uh, this being authenticated as coming from the hand of Paul. Pauline uh, authorship has uh, been called into question. Uh, But the extensive historical evidence leads us to believe that this was written by the hand of Paul. We can trust that this was a letter from Paul. And there's a number of reasons. I I don't have time to go into all of those, but we can trust that this letter came by by the hand of Paul to Timothy and to the church. Most of the early church fathers cited this particular letter, and all of them have stated that it came from Paul to Timothy. The greeting of this letter follows Paul's customary format, right? He identifies himself there. It's Paul, an apostle of the Lord. Now, this is a personal letter to Timothy. Why does he feel the need to identify himself as an apostle? Doesn't Timothy know that? Yes, he does. Why does he do this? The same reason we saw in 1 Timothy. It's not for Timothy's benefit, but for those to whom this letter would be read to the church. The expectation was that Timothy would read this letter, receive it, and then he would read it to the church. This letter ends just like 1 Timothy ends. Grace be with you. And that you is not singular, it is plural. Paul has the entire church in mind. This letter is going to be read to the church. So, The apostle of the Lord is writing this. It's an apostolic letter, so therefore it is authoritative and binding on the church. Now, Paul states the origin of his apostleship here. How was he made an apostle? He says, by the will of God. In nine of his 13 letters, he has referenced either the call or the will or the command of God as the means by which Paul became an apostle of the Lord. Now, why is that important? Well, Paul was not one of the original 12, was he? He wasn't one of the original 12. How did he become an apostle then? Well, we know it was by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. And by Paul stating it was by the will or command or call of God, he is trying to let them know, listen, I'm not a self-appointed apostle. Not like in our present day, right? Everyone likes to throw that title of apostle on themselves. They're not apostles. Paul didn't appoint himself. The origin of his apostleship didn't come from man's doing. It didn't come by the hands of the other apostles laying hands on him. It didn't come from a church commissioning him as an apostle of the Lord. No, it was by the eternal will and decree of God that Paul was an apostle. 
That's where it originated. And the chief object or aim of his apostleship is this. It is the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. What is that? It's the gospel message, isn't it? It is the message of the good news here. He came. This is his commission. This is the object of his apostleship. To preach and proclaim the good news that sinners can obtain the promise of life through Christ Jesus. That's why he's an apostle of the Lord. The gospel was the first and last thing on his mind. It has always been the gospel. It will always be the gospel. The first and last of his ministry. Why? For only the gospel offers true life. It's only the gospel that offers eternal life. Life in the present. Life in the glories of the world to come. And the promise of that life can only be found in Christ Jesus. It's nowhere else. There's no other means by which anyone can obtain the kind of life Paul is referring to here. Only through Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that life cannot come apart from him. For Paul, Christ was the focus of everything. Christ was the center of everything. Three times in these two verses, these first two verses, he mentions Christ Jesus. It was his obsession. It was his aim. It was his center. It was his focus. Christ Jesus was everything to Paul. And it must be for Timothy. And it must be for the church. And it must be for each and every one of us. Paul is gospel-centered. He's Jesus-centered. That's how Paul introduces himself. He's an apostle. He's coming with the full weight and authority granted to him as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our responsibility as we read this? It is to receive it as scripture. It is to receive it as the universally authoritative word of God that is instructive for us. In every way for life and practice. So don't dismiss this again thinking this is just for church leaders or this was just about Timothy. This is for us today. Who's this letter? Who's the recipient of this letter? Well, it's Timothy. Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Don't you just feel the warmth of affection Paul has for Timothy? That my beloved child. Remember in 1 Timothy, he addresses as a man, my true child in the faith. My true child in the faith. It's a personal letter. To his spiritual son. And Timothy is receiving this. As a letter from his spiritual father. Father to a son. Mentor to a protege. The apostle. Servant of God. Minister of the gospel. To his disciple Timothy. Timothy was more than just a disciple wasn't he? He is more than a ministry partner. Paul had a number of ministry partners. That traveled with him. That he left in churches. Um, Timothy held a special place in Paul's heart and in his life. It was more like family to him. And uh, he mentions Paul in a lot of his letters. Rather, he mentions Timothy in a lot of his letters. You read through his his letters, you're going to see Timothy's name pop up over and over again. And wherever Timothy's name is mentioned, he is commended as a faithful and trustworthy brother. Look at Acts chapter 16. From the very moment that Paul is introduced to Timothy. 
Here's what it says in verse 1 and 2 of Acts 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. Verse 2. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra, Lystra and Iconium. He was well spoken of by the brothers. He had a great reputation among the saints of God. In Philippians chapter 2, after having been with Paul for a while, this is what Paul writes to the church at Philippi concerning Timothy. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Listen, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. How amazing is that? Could that be said of you? Could could others see your life here and and your service to the Lord and how you serve the saints and know that you're more concerned for their welfare and for the concerns of Jesus Christ than for your own? Could others see you and your life and, and, and say that is a person of proven worth. That's a trustworthy individual. That is someone you can count on. That is someone who is, who is faithful. Now Paul concludes his greeting here with this threefold blessing. And sometimes all these words are not present in his greeting, but here you have grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are grace, mercy, and peace? If not the very three things each and every one of us needs in order to have salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. We need grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, the undeserving kindness of God extended to wretched, sinful sinners like you and I. And the mercy of God that He shows, right, to those who have been alienated from Him, those who are completely helpless to rescue themselves from this wretched state and condition. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul recalls to mind how he received mercy. And and, and he remembers what he was. He was a a blasphemer. He was an opponent of God. He's someone who persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. But he says, I received mercy. And he talked about how the grace of God overflowed for him. Grace, mercy, and peace. Peace is the result of the reconciling work of Christ to End the hostility between us and God. For in that condition, we are enemies of God. We are opposed to God. We're two warring factions. And we're only reconciled by the peace made by the blood of Christ on the cross. So now we have peace with God. We are in harmony with God because of Christ Jesus. Grace, mercy, Peace, John Stott summarizes in his commentary these three things as grace to the worthless, mercy to the helpless, and peace to the restless. It's exactly what it is. And how do these things come to us? This grace, mercy, and peace? Through God the Father. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The triune God is the fountainhead from which this threefold blessing springs forth to us. That's his greeting. Now let's look at the body, the start, the beginning of the body of this letter to Timothy. Look at Paul's first expression 
there in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. I thank God. And he's, 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 he's uttering forth a prayer of thanksgiving. He mentions his forefathers, his ancestors, the great patriarchs, Abraham and Moses and the, and the others, because he stands in a long line of those who are going to be justified by faith in the promises of God. Look what he adds here next. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience. Now think about what a profound statement that is considering where Paul is at this moment. Rotting away in some underground chamber knowing that his, his death was imminent. And like any one of us, we would be reflecting on our life. We would be thinking about everything in that moment. In that moment, he is there thanking God, expressing gratitude with a clear conscience. Clear conscience. Not feeling guilt. Not feeling shame. Not because of his own good merit, but again because of the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that came to him. Right, His, his sins have been covered by Christ. Now to say he has a clear conscience doesn't mean he's sinless, right? But it's his condition of blamelessness before God. He's been made righteous by Christ Jesus. He's there with a clear conscience at the end of his life. He has no regrets in life, no regrets in ministry, because he's been faithful to the Lord. He's been faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later on in this letter, he would write, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Oh, that you and I would be able to say that in the last moments of our life. And I hope, I hope you want to finish the course of your life this way. With a clear conscience. You've ran the course of your life. You've finished the race. And, and before God you could say, I have a clear conscience. I don't have any regrets in how I live for God. I want that for myself. And you should want that too. What a great example. The apostle of the Lord is not only to Timothy, but for all the saints of God in this. Now the apostle is going to bring to the forefront here three recollections in how he's going to exhort and encourage Timothy. I want you to see the three things he says that he remembers here at the opening of his letter here. Okay, Because he's looking back. He's got time. A little bit of time. He's not doing anything else at that moment. And look what he writes to Timothy here. The first thing he recalls is his continual prayer for Timothy. He says, Timothy, I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day unceasing prayer for his spiritual son, Timothy here. Timothy's on his mind. Timothy's on his heart. He's the subject of his continual intercession. He's praying for him. And as he's praying, the Spirit of God is giving him some fresh petitions and supplications to pray for Timothy and to pray for his labor and his work there uh, in Ephesus. It's a deep expression of gratitude and thanksgiving as Paul remembers Timothy here. Now, this continual and unceasing prayer we see as the habitual pattern of Paul's life. It is the normal rhythm 
of his prayer life, of of praying for the churches and praying for individual saints of God. I'm going to just give you three passages here quickly. Romans 1, 8 through 10. Paul writes to the church in Rome, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Look what he writes here. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Like he calls God his witness. Now I know we kind of casually tell people when they, hey, could you pray for me? I'll, be, I'll pray for you. And we don't. We're all guilty as charged. Right? Oh yeah, I've been praying for you. Really? But Paul's praying. Paul's praying. And we know that because look at these next two passages. We get the sum and substance and content of his prayers. We're not going to read all of it here, but I'm going to encourage you to read through those prayers and pray them over yourself. These apostolic prayers are theologically rich of things for us to pray over ourselves and to pray over our church family. Ephesians 1, 15-16, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? Colossians 1, 9-10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We've not ceased to pray these things for you. That pattern of unceasing prayer needs to mark our lives too, brothers and sisters. We've talked about prayerlessness before. Every single person in this room here would say, I know I need to pray more. It's our very air. It's the very lifeblood for us. It's the very thing we need to engage in, this rhythm of prayer and thanksgiving. We must cultivate that. We want to be a praying people. We want to be a praying church. So he calls to mind his continual prayer for Timothy. The second thing he recalls is the warmth and depth of their relationship, of their friendship. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. What's Paul remembering there when he says, I remember your tears? It's not that Timothy was a crybaby. I mean, he might have been, but I guess if you had to deal with the church at Ephesus and those hard things, he might have been in the fetal position a few times. But I think he's probably remembering a very recent tearful goodbye. The time where they were maybe saw themselves the very last time. And um, they had to separate. You may have experienced that, right? A loved one that maybe has come to visit and you hadn't seen in a long time. And you know you're not going to see them face to face again for, for a long period of time. You probably have had tearful goodbyes. Remember years back when Betts and I made a number of ministry trips to Peru. We grew so fond of, of many of the people in the churches that we got to minister alongside with over a number of trips. I mean, we grew to love them. They grew to love us. And I remember every departure was, you know, snot crying, you know, and sobbing and just tearful goodbyes, you know, because you knew you wouldn't probably see these people, maybe some of them, and we haven't seen any of them again in a number of years. Those are tearful goodbyes. And they had experienced one of those here. Lots of tears flowing. This is his spiritual son. Again, this shows us again the depth of his relationship with Timothy here. 
It's one of deep affection and love. Look what he says. He expresses he longs to see him again. He doesn't say like, I hope to see you again soon. No, no, he longed to see him again. And again, where is he? He's in prison. He's not getting out. The end of this letter, he's like, Timothy, make haste. He's imploring him, please make your way to me. I want to see you again. And he says, when I see you again, it's going to fill me with joy. Now, we already know something about Timothy's character, right? The way he is and, and the reputation he had. Timothy was the kind of person you would be excited to see, I believe. And you know, there's those kind of people in our lives, people that are full of joy. People that when you're in their presence, like their joy is contagious. Their joy in, in Christ is just something so amazing. You want to be around them. I would hope you'd want to be that person also, right? That others would find joyful, that you would, would fill them with joy. And this is what Paul is expressing about his spiritual son, Timothy. I, I want to see you. I long to see you make your way to me so that I can be filled with joy. Even if it was Timothy just kind of peering down that, that hole at Paul in chains. Paul would be overjoyed at that reunion. Are there any relationships in your life like that? Relationships in your life like that of Paul and Timothy's. It's been said that we all need a Paul in our life. And we all need a Timothy in our life. Right? Someone like Paul. Someone who... Uh, is a spiritually mature believer, right, that can mentor us and, 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 and help us uh, grow spiritually and, can, and help us in our walk with the Lord. I remember as a, as a teenager, uh, I, I wouldn't say I had many of those in my life, but I remember a godly man by the name of Tim Powell um, uh, who just had such a, a, a kind and humble and peaceful spirit about him, man, and a beautiful family. Uh, you could tell he had an amazing relationship with his wife, and his children loved him and loved being with him. And um, I would soak up every word of encouragement he would give me as a 16, 17, 18-year-old. And, and hearing his godly wisdom as he would share in the Bible studies and share in the church and the, the times that he got to preach and minister. This was a godly man that I looked up to uh, as a mentor. But we also need someone like Timothy. Someone that we're discipling, someone that we are pouring into, someone that we are encouraging in their faith and helping nurture their faith. We should all have those kind of relationships. And if you don't have them, I would encourage you to pray for them and to seek them out. Seek them out. If you're a Timothy, find a Paul. If you're a Paul, find a Timothy to begin to disciple. Lastly, he recalls Timothy's sincere faith. He remembers his continual prayers uh, for Timothy. He remembers the depth of his affection, his love and friendship for Timothy. But he also remembers Timothy's sincere faith. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now, if you recall a little bit of our background history of Timothy, and, and we've read it in Acts, uh, in our passage in Acts, Timothy had a Gentile father. He was a half-breed. He was half-Jew, half-Gentile. Okay? Lots of problems to the pure Jewish believers. Right? Uh, his father was a Gentile. He was probably an unbeliever. But what we do know is that his grandmother and his mother were Jewish. 
They were Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, they were like Paul's ancestors, how Paul recounts his spiritual heritage. He's mentioning Timothy's heritage here as well. Your grandmother and your Lois possess a sincere faith, the genuine thing, the real deal. Right? They, they are ones who came to faith in Christ. They experienced the, the profound continuity between the Old and the New Covenant. How did the Old Testament saints come to salvation? Through faith in Jesus Christ. No different than how we come to faith today. Now, they didn't have the full revelation of that, but what did they believe? They believed in the promises of God. How was Abraham justified? He was justified by faith. In what? The promises of God. Right? The spiritual seed of the woman that would come, the deliverer, the Messiah. They believed in that. Well, his grandmother and his mother came to faith in Christ Jesus, most likely under the preaching and ministry of Paul when he came to Lystra. So he had a grandmother and a mother who were believers who had a sincere faith. And Paul is remembering that that same, same sincere faith that characterized his grandmother and mother also characterized Timothy as well. Now we remember that, that his grandmother and his mother were told, taught him the scriptures, right? For us, the Old Testament scriptures, right? But in 2 Timothy 3.15 you see, Paul's going to write, and how from childhood, he's writing to Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How did he come to that? Through his godly mom, through his godly grandmother, who taught him the scriptures. It's a beautiful thing. There's nothing like a godly grandma and a godly mother who teach their children God's word, who pray for their children who beseech God on behalf of their children. I love how uh, Spurgeon, in, in many of his preachings and in, in a lot of his writings, um, he recalls with great fondness the impact, the spiritual impact his godly mother had in his life. She would, her name was Eliza, she would, she would read the scripture. She'd gather all the kids and she'd read the scriptures to them. She'd pray over them and she would plead with them to trust and follow Jesus Christ. There's a, one of his writings, he recalls a, a moment where he came home one day and he, he's going up the stairs to, to the rooms. And as he's going up the stairs and ascending, he begins to hear his mother through the door of her room. And she is crying out. She is pleading with God for the salvation of her children. And she's specifically mentioning Charles by name because he was the most stubborn and rebellious of them. Right? And these are memories that, that so impacted um, Charles Spurgeon and, and influenced his life from a very young age so that the moment, you know, when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, you could see how the prayers and the, and the, the impact of his godly mother had as instrumental in his coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Grandmothers, mothers, you play such an important role in the life of your kids and grandkids. Do not ever underestimate that. It matters. Pray for your kids when they're young. Open the scriptures to them. When they're old, counsel them and give them advice from God's word. Let the word of God continually pour forth from you. Of course, dads are engaged in this. But right now we're talking about grandmas and mamas here, right? Godly ones. Labor to produce a godly lineage by transmitting and teaching the faith to subsequent generations. It has great impact. 
Now, if you were brought up in a Christian home, you better thank God for the rich blessings you have there. I remind our daughter of that frequently. The things that God spares you from. To have praying parents. For a child to know you've been prayed for every single day of your life. Prayers have been going forth. Do you not think God is going to answer those? Of course He is. Of course He is. And we need to believe that. So you have great impact, moms and grandmas. Don't forget that. As well as dads. Now, in saying that, he's remembering Timothy's sincere faith and hearkening back to the sincere faith uh, of his grandmother and his mother. He is not by any way saying that Timothy inherited sincere faith from them. Okay? You cannot pass along faith. Saving faith. Genuine faith. Just because a child is born in a Christian home and, and born to Christian parents and raised in a home that teaches the Scripture and prays the Scripture does not automatically save them. We know that, correct? What is sincere faith? How does it come? It's the work of Christ. It is a work of the indwelling Spirit of grace. This is how Timothy came to sincere faith, just like every single one of us comes to sincere faith. Though his grandmother and his mother were a godly influence in his life, though they were instrumental in his spiritual formation... His sincere faith was only possible through the new birth produced by the Holy Spirit. He had to be regenerated. He had to come to faith in Christ Jesus himself. Okay? Now, Paul says that he's reminded of his sincere faith. He's assured that Timothy has sincere faith. That Timothy's the real deal. That he's got the genuine stuff, the right stuff. And I imagine, as we've said before, when we looked at Timothy's biographical sketch. Timothy was young, you know, in, in terms of the age here. He was probably in his mid-30s, mid to late 30s at this time, but young relative to those who would be considered elders in the Jewish culture, especially in the synagogue. We knew that he was afflicted somehow with some infirmity, with stomach or digestive issues that Paul referenced in his letter of 1 Timothy. And we know from reading these letters that Timothy was timid. There was an insecurity in Timothy's life, probably because of the great shoes he had to fill and the level of responsibility he had there at the church as an apostolic delegate. uh, delegate. But here, what is the great apostle of the Lord saying to him? Timothy, you have sincere faith. I believe in you. I believe in the call of God upon you. Could you imagine how that motivation and the confidence... That, that that would give Timothy, how that would boost him, right? To know that the apostle, his spiritual father in the faith here, believes in him. Believes that he has sincere faith. And we need people in our life to encourage us that way, don't we? For people to affirm, hey, I'm seeing, I'm seeing growth in your life. I'm seeing you grow in your sanctification. I'm seeing you progress in your sanctification. You evidence real, genuine, and sincere Faith, I'm watching how you're going through things in life. I'm seeing how you overcome adversity. I'm seeing how you've overcome temptation in your life and how you're persevering in faithfulness to God and His, and His gospel. We need people in our life to encourage us that way. We also need to be ones to encourage others like that as well. So Timothy uh, is, is reminded here of what Paul is remembering here. 
He's remembering how, how he prays for Timothy and the sincerity of his faith and the relationship he has. But now he's telling Timothy, there's something you need to be reminded of. I'm reminded of these things, but here, Timothy, is what you need to be reminded of. Verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is why Paul takes this trip down memory lane. Okay, remembering these things and telling Timothy about these things. Here's why I'm doing that. Timothy, you need to fan into flame the gift of God. That's what you need to remember. That's what you need to be reminded of. Now, there's two things that he's asking him to be reminded of here. The first, he wants uh, Timothy to be reminded of the special endowment he has received from the Lord. This gift of God. Okay, it's a gift of God. He had just finished reminding Timothy of the indirect means by which how God had shaped his character and his life as a believer. His godly lineage and his special relationship with Paul. And now he's going to remind him of the direct means God is using to shape his life. This special gift of God that had been given to him. Now what is that gift of God? What is it? He doesn't tell us here. It's like remains a mystery to us. Now, we looked at something in 1 Timothy that kind of helps us understand a little bit more what that gift might have been. Because there's a particular exhortation that Timothy has given in the previous letter a year and a half to two years before. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. <clears throat> Paul writes to him, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So he has to fan into flame the gift of God but a couple of years before, he was told to not neglect the gift of God. When did he receive this gift? Well, we kind of understand that this was probably during his ordination, his commissioning, right? His, his appointment uh, as an apostolic delegate. Uh, and and at, at, that, at that event, the elders and Paul laid hands upon him, commissioned him. There were some prophetic words that were spoken over him. And some gift of God, by the Spirit of God, was conveyed to Timothy related to his ministry call. And that probably had to do with what he needed to discharge his call as a minister of the gospel. Teaching gifts, preaching gifts, certainly gifts related to ruling the church and leading the church as an apostolic delegate. But it was everything he needed to be equipped for the work, right? That was what the gift entailed. Even though we don't have specifically what that is, we can infer that by the other things that Paul writes to Timothy in these two letters. So what's he telling him here? It's not, Timothy, this isn't, you aren't what you are now. In other words, an apostolic delegate, a minister of the gospel, my co-laborer in the gospel, right? You're not what you are now only because of your spiritual heritage. Only because you had a godly grandmother, only because you had a godly mother, or even because of my spe- your special relationship with me as an apostle and you're my disciple, a spiritual father to a spiritual son. You are what you are now because God called you. And not only did he call you, he endowed you with all of the spiritual resources you need for that call. That's what you need to remember, Timothy, here. That the God who called you is the same God who has equipped you. There is a gift of God. 
That tells you this is not something Timothy had. This isn't a natural talent. Though when we talk about spiritual gifts sometimes, we refer to our natural talents and inclinations. Now, this was something given to him by the Spirit of God. And whatever that gift is, this is the charge. You must fan into flame that gift of God. What does that mean? Fan into flame the gift of God. Now, that verbal phrase, fan into flame, it's one word uh, in, in, the, in the Greek, and it just means to rekindle, okay, to rekindle, to make something active again. And, and it's, it's saying the gift of God and, and talking about it like a fanning into flame something, right, which evokes the imagery of, you ever did a bonfire? You're a guy, you always love to set fire to things, right? But, right, you put some logs there, they start going up in flame, and after a while, though, you the the flame the flicker starts flickering lower and lower. And what do you want to do if you want that thing to come to life again? If you want that, that fire to roar again and be ablaze again, you fan it. Okay, Because one of the sources of fuel that a fire needs to continue to go on is oxygen, right? So you blow it. You might, you might fan it with something. And what ends up happening to those, those glowing logs, right? They get hotter and hotter, and all of a sudden, that fire kicks up again. It's a glorious thing. Fire is good. We should start one here now. <laughs> That's the imagery here, right, that, that, that he's, in, he's evoking here. This gift of God is likened to a fire, one that he's not to neglect because in neglecting it, diminishes it. It could fizzle out. And here he's being exhorted to continually then rekindle that fire to keep it burning. He's talking about the exercise of his gift. That this gift of God, Timothy, is something you need to put into practice. You need to keep practicing. You need to keep kindling and rekindling over and over again. The gifts that God has given you need to be developed. And they need to be put into use and practice. Because what God has given you must keep burning. Timothy, the gifts that God gave you, you got to put those into practice. You could use it or lose it. Okay? It's kind of the implication here. Again, Timothy, just because you had a faithful mom, faithful grandma, a relationship with me does not mean you can abandon what God has given you. Keep the gift ablaze. Now, the subject of, of spiritual gifts is lengthy, not one we can go into great depth right now. But the principle here and the command is for each and every believer here because every single believer has been given gifts by the Spirit of God. Gifts that need to be cultivated and used. How do I know that? God's Word tells us. No surprise there, right? Let's look at two passages here quickly that are familiar to you. 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to read 4 through 7 and verse 11. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth here, a church that loved using the gifts of the Spirit, but there were misapplications, misunderstandings, and abuses of the gifts which he's bringing correction to. And he starts this chapter by saying, I don't want you to be unaware of spiritual gifts. You need to be aware of them. You need to understand them. I want to instruct and teach you concerning this. But in verse 4 and on, he writes, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, look, 
who empowers them all, in some of you, in a handful of you, in only the most spiritual of you, in only the leaders of the church, no, in everyone, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Do you get to determine what your spiritual gift is? No, right? It's a gift of God. It's a gift of grace. It's the Spirit of God apportions as he wills. And across this room, there are varieties of gifts that the Spirit of God has given believers. Different manifestations of the Spirit of grace in each and every one's life. So if you have the Holy Spirit, and there's only one way you'd have the Holy Spirit. And that's if you have Christ, who gives us the Spirit, right? Who causes the Spirit to indwell us. You have the Holy Spirit, He's given you a gift. And if he's given you a gift, it's your responsibility to cultivate and exercise that gift. To nurture that gift, to develop it, and employ it for the common good. What's the common good? For the building up of the church. For the building up of the body of believers. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us, what? Use them. And he gives us a few here. If prophecy... Prophesy in proportion to your faith. If service, in serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Those gifts and others have been given to each and every one of us. To what end? To bless the people of God. To build up the church of Jesus Christ. To see it mature and be edified. Okay? That means we need to exercise those gifts. Not just one of us, not only a handful of us, but all of us using the gifts that have been given us for the glory of God and the good of His church. They're to be rekindled through active use. Now, if you want to build up your muscles, what do you do? You got to use them, you got to work them out, you got to lift some weights, there's got to be some resistance. Well, it's the same thing with our spiritual gifts. They need to be exercised. If not, they become weak and anemic and downright useless here. Now, that's true for natural gifts, but definitely true of, of the spiritual gifts of God. They must be exercised for the good of the church and the body of Christ. So what gift has God given you? What gift has the Spirit of God given you? And how are you using it? How are you exercising it? The church needs your gifts. The body of Christ needs your gifts. Your brothers and sisters need you to exercise your gift. It is how we grow up into mature manhood. It is how we grow up in faith in Jesus Christ. Put it into practice. So Paul's reminding him of this special endowment. You've received a gift, Timothy. You've got it. It was given to you. At your ordination, at the, when I laid my hands upon you, some endowment of the Spirit was conveyed to you. Exercise it. Fan it into flame continually. 
And secondly, and most importantly, Paul wants to remind him of the Spirit's empowerment. Not just the special endowment, but to fan that gift to full blaze by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, in the translation, we customarily read from the ESV here, that word spirit is lowercase. And as you read that, you might think, well, what's he talking about here? Normally, when we're talking about the Spirit of God, it's capitalized, isn't it? Right? It's the person of the Holy Spirit. You might think, is he referring to the human spirit here? Is he talking about some attitude or disposition where we're not fearful, right? And we have self-control and we have love. Paul is speaking here of the Spirit of God. And I think the NIV actually does a good job in translating this phrase. Now, when you read that word, it's the same word in the Greek. can be capitalized or it could be lowercase, right? It means wind or breath or spirit. Uh, the NIV renders this and some other translations very similar to this as well. Uh, renders it, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The Spirit God gave us, right? For God gave us the Spirit, okay? It's not talking about your human spirit, not talking about a disposition. It's talking about the Spirit of God. Timothy does not need to lack any confidence in exercising the gift of God that has been given to him because the one who gave him the gift also empowers him to use that gift. He's been given a gift, but he's been given something far greater than a gift. He's been given the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. All who are in Christ Jesus receive the gift of the Spirit himself. See, Paul in a few, a few verses down from here is going to charge Timothy once again with the same thing he closed 1 Timothy with. To guard the good deposit entrusted to him. And how is Timothy supposed to do that? How is Timothy to guard the good deposit, the gospel, the sound doctrine, the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 114, he's going to do it by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Who dwells in you, brothers and sisters? The Holy Spirit. Who has given you gifts? The Holy Spirit. That, that was not a trick question. That was an easy one. Have you already had the answer? You have the indwelling Spirit of God who has gifted you. And what does he say here? This, this Spirit he's, he's given to you, the Spirit of God, it's not a spirit of cowardice. It's not a spirit that's going to cause you to shrink back. It's not one of of timidity, which is what Timothy obviously suffered from and what many of us do here. No, you can exercise your gifts confidently, whether it's preaching and teaching or leading the church and doing the things that God has called you to do because of the Spirit of God who is in you. It's in His power that you'll use these gifts. It's in His power that you're going to exercise the gifts of God. So we know He may not have felt up to the task. He may have felt insecure. How many of us in doing things, my goodness, I remember oh, my first days as a, as a youth pastor. Oh, what a horrible time. I was quivering, you know. My first sermon, 10 pages, I ripped through that in two minutes. And I know some of you are now like, I wish he'd do that again. Can we go back to that? No, I mean, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I was just young and dumb. 
you know. Um, but the Spirit gave me grace. And the Spirit empowered me. And 27 years later, I'm still in ministry. And I'm still learning and I'm still growing. But I still have to depend on the Spirit of God. But He gives me grace and He gives me power to what He's called me to do. And it's the same with each one of us who has the Spirit of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And He doesn't give us a spirit of fear. We don't have to worry in exercising our gift. Timothy doesn't have to worry in the exercise of his gift if he's going to use it in a manipulative or self-asserting or selfish or self-glorifying way. Why? Because the Spirit of God, that same Spirit that empowers him, it's also the Spirit of love. The Spirit of the love of God. The love of Christ Jesus. So he's going to exercise that gift and love for the benefit of others. For the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ. And he need not worry about not having reverence or restraint because the Spirit of God is also the Spirit of self-control, of self-discipline. He'll be able to exercise His gifts in the restrained manner that is befitting a minister of the Lord. I want you to think about this, brothers and sisters. If you're lacking confidence in exercising your gifts, if you feel weak and inadequate like Timothy you want to serve God, but you feel like you don't know how, or that you can't, or that you don't have something to offer, or all of us have gift envy, we wish we had that and not what we do have, if we're being honest. Maybe you feel that way. We need to be reminded of this. We've all been given the Spirit of God if we are in Christ Jesus. That same Spirit that indwelt Paul and Timothy indwells us today each and every one of us we have the holy spirit and each one of us is responsible to fan into full blaze the gift that he has given to us are you doing that are you exercising that gift maybe you're here today and sometimes when we look at this passage we think of we think of it as as just general passion for the lord that Passion maybe has died down. I don't really serve God. I really don't serve His church. I don't really serve His people. I feel like it's like a little wisp of an ember. Maybe it's a smoldering flack. And that might be. That might be your condition here today. That might be your situation. So even exercising. That thought of exercising your gifts is like. Oh man that's another level. I'm not even anywhere near that right now. Maybe your gifts have been dormant. They've been inactive. I want you to think about Paul's exhortations to Timothy here. And how they're for you here today as well. God is calling each one of us here to step out and step up. In service to him and to his people. And how he's given us not just a gift. But he's given us the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that if you ask him to help you fan that into full blaze. That he'll do that. He will do that. I promise you he'll do that. That if it's a little ember. There's nothing like the breath of God. The spirit of God. That blows over those smoldering coals of our life. And he can fan that into full blaze. Today. I want us to believe that God will do that. I want you to believe that. And I want you to be reminded. That the spirit of God is with you. Be encouraged by that. That God equips his servants to fulfill their ministry 
by granting them everything they need, all of the spiritual power that goes along with the exercise of that gifting. You may not have had a powerful mentor in your life like Paul. I'm going to be honest with you. I've had some pretty lousy mentors in my life. Spiritual fathers who failed me in many, 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 many ways. Ones that I had looked up to only to really let me down. Whose lives did not, they could not say I have finished the race well here. I've run the course of my life. Some of you may have not had godly parents. You didn't have a godly mom, a godly grandmother, a godly father um, to pour into your life spiritually, you know, or to invest in you. But what you do have is the indwelling spirit of God. That's what you have. You have something far greater. Use those gifts for the glory of God. I'm going to conclude with um, a prayer of Jim Elliott a great missionary for the Lord, a young missionary uh, whose story is super inspiring, who surrendered uh, his life um, in his desire to bring the gospel to unreached people groups. But his wife later wrote in a book something that she saw in his prayer journal. And this was a prayer that he wrote out. And I think it's one that we could pray today for each one of us. He prayed this, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life And may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. May it be so in each one of us today.